Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today in the podcast, we have another presidential candidate. Today, it's Senator Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. Appropriately enough, we recorded this on Women's Equality Day. And Gillibrand has made gender equality issues the centerpiece of her campaign. We talked to her about that and a ton of other issues, in part because Senator Gillibrand speaks so quickly, she covers more ground than I think any other candidate I've interviewed on the podcast. You might want to slow this one down to about half speed so you can catch it all. We talk about the concept of electability in this campaign, particularly when it comes to Joe Biden, as he has made it the centerpiece of his campaign, and whether that term is loaded with gender bias. And of course, we talk about the resignation of Senator Al Franken a couple years ago over allegations of sexual impropriety. Gillibrand was at the head of that. We talked to her about what she would do differently. And she also explains what the road back should be for men who are accused of sexual impropriety. What should they be doing? And the senator, if you you may know this, she has a bit of a reputation for swearing. She once gave up swearing for Lent. And I try and bait her into cursing on the podcast. Will she take the bait? Find out next when Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is on It's All Political. Senator Gillibrand, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome back to San Francisco, the city of St. Francis. Thank you. So part of the pitch that you have when when you're on the trail is that you won a congressional district that was two to one Republicans. Right. Upstate New York many years ago before you became a senator. Now, some of your competitors are saying the same thing. They're like, Bullock says, hey, I won Montana. That was a red state. And Michael Bennett was on the podcast the other day, said, hey, I won a nationally uh, watched race in Colorado, which is a purple state. Uh, even uh, Amy Klobuchar says she's won in Minnesota, which is, I guess, trending purple. How, what makes you different than, than those guys when you talk about this stuff? So my story is very different. Uh, not only was I elected twice in a two-to-one Republican district that no one thought I could win except my mother, literally. Um, <laughs> well, at least you got her. She she believed, and so did I. And we won the second time with a 24-point margin. But then what I did next is even more interesting. Uh, I then represented our state and ran for election three times, having the highest vote percentage in the history of the state, higher than Hillary, higher than Obama, higher than Trump, higher than any person who ever ran for senator or governor ever. And why that's so significant is because I brought the whole state together, the red places, the purple places, and the blue places. And moreover, I actually get a lot of legislation done because I'm always working across party lines, finding common ground uh, across my state for to represent people in all areas, but also in Congress. And so even in the last Congress, I passed 18 bills, all of which President Trump signed into law. He does not know he signed my bills into law, but he <laughs> did. And uh, so I actually not only win electorally, but I actually get things done. And I think this election is so much more than about President Trump. We need a president who will bring us together, mm-hmm. who will take on the fights that other people won't, and will actually win them. And I have a record of doing exactly that. So, uh, by the way, we're recording this uh, on uh, Women's Equality Day. Yes, we are, and I'm wearing Monday. white. Yes, I, I Your noticed audience that. doesn't yes, know that. I but will, yeah, I will I verify am. that. Senator is wearing a white suit. Um, and uh, which, for those of you who don't know, we're commemorating the 99th anniversary of the adoption of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote and fully participate in our democracy. Now, you've made gender equality issues the center of your campaign. Yeah. Uh, You want things like 12 weeks of paid family leave and medical leave for for a new child. You want to codify Roe v. Wade. 
But don't, don't all Democrats kind of agree on this? Where is your twist different? So it's just a question of whether you're going to fight for it when the door closes on that negotiating room. Uh, women's rights are one of the first things that get thrown out the window in negotiations by leaders of both parties. And we need a presidential nominee and a president who values women, who will fight for equal pay for equal work, affordable daycare, universal pre-K, a national paid leave plan, who will fight to end sexual violence in the military and on college campuses, will take sexual harassment in the workplace seriously. Because the truth is, these are all economic issues. And if you don't have all of our country uh, working at their fullest capacity in careers and jobs that they love, you're not going to really realize the full potential of America. And so these issues go to the heart of who we are as people. We believe in equality, uh, but sometimes our policies don't reflect that. And so I want America, Americans to know that I'll fight for you no matter who you are or where you live or who you love. I'll fight for your kids as hard as I fight for my own. And I won't give up. I will take on the battles. Other people won't. And I actually win them. Do you think, so you're, you're saying you would, you're fighting for these, you have fought for these harder than some of your competitors have? Yes. I've led the charge on these issues for a decade. I've been on the Armed Services Committee for 10 years and have led the charge on ending sexual violence in the military. Uh, that then extended to my work on ending sexual violence on college campuses. Uh, I've worked, I've written the National Paid Leave Plan bill. Mm -hmm. That is the signature for bill several years, that, that several candidates have endorsed in support. Um, it is how we get to national pay leave. Uh, and I've been leading the debate uh, within this campaign on those issues. I was the first candidate, and I think only candidate, to roll out a family bill of rights to talk about every aspect of a family in the first five years of a child's life, from access to a safe and healthy pregnancy. Our maternal mortality rate is very high in this country. We're the worst of all industrialized country on that issue. If you're a black woman, you're five, excuse me, four times more likely to die in childbirth mm -hmm. because of institutional racism and bias in our healthcare system. Uh, the fact that we should have a right to survive that first few months. I have an idea about baby bundles, letting people bring home a box that can be used as a crib with swaddling cloths, with diapers, with formula, with a thermometer, things that new parents might not have and desperately need, and then guaranteeing paid leave, affordable daycare, and universal pre-K, all things that would make it easier to be a working parent in this country. And you support uh, Medicare for all. Do you see a role for private insurers at all? Yes. Um, they can play whatever role they want, but my belief is uh, when you offer Medicare at a price people can afford, 4 or 5% of income matched by their employer, you will create so much competition in the healthcare space that people will choose Medicare over their private insurer because Medicare covers more things. It's uh, better quality. And you know our insurers deny all the time a day in the hospital or a procedure or a medicine because they want to make money. They care more about profits than their patients, and that's just the truth. So I believe competition, not-for-profit, public option competition will drive out the private insurers. So the public option is what you're for, correct? Or yes, it? but I'm also for Medicare for All because I think what you have to do and the part of Senator Sanders' bill that I got to work on that I helped to write was this transition of four or five years. If you give a transition of four or five years and you improve Medicare before you build on it, meaning cover dental, cover eyes, cover ears, cover pediatrics, and cover anything that's not covered why people currently buy Medicare Advantage, cover all things, plus guarantee the reimbursement rates, the actual cost of the procedure or drug or um, treatment that you need. You can build on that and, and you go back to the 
drug companies and you guarantee that you get the lowest rate, just like Canada does, you do those couple of things, you can build on Medicare. I wouldn't be surprised within five years, most of America's bought in. And once you do that, your step to single payer is so short because then you can make it an earned benefit, just like Social Security, where everyone, regardless of income, is going to buy in and that's at 4 like or 5%. part of how you would pay for it. You're not, you're not for chart raising taxes on, on the no, wealthy. No, I think this. people should buy in. Tax. It's better that way because – Imagine the next president, if you got this done in your presidency, imagine the next president trying to take away Medicare for all if you've just bought in over four or eight years that you've actually paid in your hard-earned money. It's yours, just like Social Security. No president in America can successfully take away Social Security because all Americans have bought in their whole careers. So it's, polit- it's a political move to, to yeah. get so it people invested it, in, correct. in the program. Correct. You ask them to invest in it. You match your employers so you have enough resources. Eventually, if people choose it, you can then go to – universal coverage and everyone buys in as an earned benefit just like Social Security. So my vision long term is to make sure it's a universal right and everyone has it. Um, let's talk uh, some of the politics of the day and, and, and the campaign. And let's – one of my favorite new bullshit terms, which is – we can say bullshit on the Are podcast. Are you allowed to swear you, on you your You can podcast? say this. And I know you're, you're – you can swear. Oh, you my can, goodness. Yes, please. I, I hope you I hope So you not something. allowed yes. on oh, the campaign yes, trail. Yes. Well, this is this is a podcast. Um, is electability. Yeah. All right. Dr. Jill Biden, Joe Biden's uh, wife, said the other day, I know that not all of you are committed to my husband, and I respect that, but I want you to think about your candidate, his or her electability, and who is going to win this race. We recently had a researcher on here um, that did the recent report about that said, quote, white men have no electability advantage at all. Isn't this kind of a sexist thing that we're talking about when, when Dr. Joseph talks about electability? I think I'm the most electable candidate of all of them, which is why I decided <laughs> I to hope run. I would say that. Uh, yes. I really believe it because I do win in the red places, the purple places, and the blue places. And I win at a higher rate of any other Democrat that's run in my state for any office. Right. Uh, so that's the truth of it. I know I can bring this whole country together. I can look at places like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin and know a lot about their economies. I've right. been on the Ag Committee for 10 years. I've been on the Armed Services Committee for 10 years. I actually know what's at need and at risk in rural economies. I put, I put forward, I believe, the most robust rural uh, economic agenda of any candidate who's running. So I know I can go into those suburbs and those rural areas, understand the farming issues, understand the manufacturing in- issues, and understanding the issues uh, that rural Mar- America needs. They need job training. They need access to more uh, resources so they can start businesses, to unleash entrepreneurialism and innovation. The Green New Deal, a future uh, to attack global climate change, is going to include these businesses in the suburbs, our manufacturing as well as our rural uh, economic um, drivers in farms and agriculture. But do you, what do you think of the term electability? Is that when, when you hear that, isn't that sort of a no? Re- I take sort of it. I take it at face. Uh, no, I take it no. at face value. Uh, I if you look at 2018, who were the breakthrough candidates? Who were the ones who flipped the house? They were women, and there were women from every background, every socioeconomic background, racial background, religious background, young women, the most diverse class of women ever. And they broke through in these red states and, and red districts because they ran on issues of conviction. They ran from their heart. Mm-hmm. So Gretchen Whitmer won in Michigan, Michigan. by 10 points a state that Trump won by running on access to health care as a right and fixing the roads. Um, she also so, had my, my favorite stat of the last election. There were more men named John in the Michigan legislature than women. 
Interesting. That's a very uh, yeah, and I think there was a stat that I just heard someone else say today. There are more CEOs named James than the number of women CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. So yeah, that stat just evergreen. Um, So she won. Kirsten Cinema won the red red state of Arizona, running on the importance of public schools and what it's like to grow up in poverty. Uh, She broke through. Uh, Women like Lucy McBath and Lauren Underwood won in suburbs as Black women. Uh, Lauren ran in the suburbs of Chicago on issues of healthcare because she's a nurse and saw what it's like for a family to not have access to medicine or procedures that mm-hmm. they need. And Lucy McBath ran on ending gun violence because her son died of gun violence in the suburbs of Atlanta. So you and, agree that electability is a bullshit term? I think it's an important <laughs> term, but I don't think it's about gender. I really believe it's uh, everyone will it's, have their own analysis. I think a woman candidate is the most electable candidate, yeah. and I think I'm the most among all of us. But that's just my view. And okay. every voter is going to make their own judgment. You, you said in the last debate that that you would help um, – you could explain white privilege to women in the suburbs. Explain a little bit. Dive, dive yeah. into that a little bit. How would you do that? So as president, uh, I understand that institutional racism is real. It's prevalent. It's pervasive. It's seen in healthcare, in education, in jobs in the economy, and in the criminal justice system. And I have a responsibility as a white woman of privilege Mm -hmm. to lift up the voices who aren't being heard and to help fight these battles as if they were my own. It's not up to black leaders or brown men and women to fight these battles alone. It's my responsibility to help them and to be part of that. And so when I'm talking to a woman in Youngstown, Ohio, and she is angry because the GM plant just decimated her community, laid off over a 1,000 workers. Some learned about their job loss through a text message. Others were given 24 hours to decide whether they were willing to move states. Their whole community was hollowed out and and feeling the, the absolute pain of not having opportunity. And so she said to me, What's the so-called white privilege that Democrats say exists? And she was complaining because she said, you know, you say Trump's so negative, but you guys are negative. And you, what's this? So I don't feel any privilege. And rightly so, she doesn't because she is hurting. She is, uh, her community's hollowed out. Jobs aren't available. And her pain is real, as real as anyone else's pain. But I had to explain to her that she's carrying this beautiful baby boy named Alexander. And I said, your son will grow up and the whiteness of his skin is what will protect him. When he is walking down the street and he has a bag of M&Ms or Skittles in his pocket Mm -hmm. and he's wearing a hoodie, his whiteness is what protects him from being shot. When he his car breaks down, he's on the highway, and he knocks on a a local neighbor's door to get help. That door will open and help will be given. And it's his whiteness that protects him from being shot. That's all that white privilege is. It's not saying that her suffering is worse or or less important than a black family suffering or a brown family suffering. You're saying that I can't solve the problem of that young black man unless I go directly at the fact that institutional racism is real. It's it's affecting his life and it's affecting communities for generations. And as president, I got to do both. I have to heal every community, give every community access and opportunity so that she can thrive and her son has a job when he grows up. But I also need to be wise enough and strong enough to recognize that institutional racism needs direct solutions, fixing maternal mortality, making sure um, access to education is not 
based on how what your income is and what the income in your community is, making sure that jobs in the economy flows to everyone. I would use my SBA, Small Business Administration, to specifically fund women and minority-owned businesses because the wealth gap between black America and white America Huge. is real and gaping. Yeah. Address... Uh, Access to capital through postal banking. Make sure that 30% of Americans who are unbanked or underbanked can actually have a checking account or a savings account. And then go after the injustice in the criminal justice system. When her son smokes pot with his girlfriend and he's 15, he probably won't be arrested. And if he is, he's probably going to be given a second chance. Whereas the son of a black woman, uh, if he smokes pot, he will likely get arrested because he's arrested four times more likely than a, a white kid who smokes pot the same amount. So it's why I have a really aggressive platform on decriminalizing marijuana, legalizing marijuana, and um, making sure we deschedule it. Because when you do that, you can create opportunity, you create equity. So black-owned businesses can be part of the marijuana industry as owners, as growers, as distributors. You want to make sure that the revenue that comes in through taxes gets reimbursed and, and reinvested in the communities that were disproportionately harmed by drug laws that were enforced against black and brown people more so than white people. So that's what you can do as president. And that's my job. And I can explain that to people everywhere. So they understand you've got to do both. You can protect all families with global economic ideas about job training and full employment, which I will do. But you also need directed, targeted responses to how racism affects people in their everyday lives. Um, you were the first senator to call for Al Franken to resign a couple of years ago after eight women accused them of sexual impropriety. And you, you stand by your decision. This has come up in the last couple of weeks after this New Yorker uh, story recently quoted seven current and former Democratic senators who urged him to resign, including two women, Tammy Duckworth and, uh, and Heidi Heitkamp, who used to be in the Senate. And they say they regret how it happened. Does that hurt the Me Too cause to hear folks walk it back? So I don't know what's in their minds or in their hearts. I just know that Senator Franken had eight allegations against him, credible allegations that were corroborated at the time they happened. Two of them since he was elected, and the eighth one was a congressional staffer. Mm -hmm. And I had been working in this space for six, seven years, trying to end sexual assault in the military for years, going up against not only generals, but you know people on both sides of the aisle, uh, trying to end sexual assault on college campuses. And right when this was happening, I was also authoring a bill with Ted Cruz, of all people, on how to change the rules to end sexual harassment in Congress. So this is a place where I've been leading on for a long time. And once we got to eight allegations, I just couldn't stay silent anymore. I couldn't defend him. And Senator Franken is the one who decided not to stick it out and do his ethics committee investigation. You would have been fine with him going he, through the ethics Absolutely. Yeah. His choice, his decision. What he's not entitled to is my silence. And that's all it is. Because I couldn't defend him and be the leader that I am that values women, that has really worked hard to change uh, how people are harassed in the workplace, change how they're assaulted in different parts of life. And so I made my choice. He made his choice. He chose to resign. He chose not to do his ethics committee investigation. He chose not to explain himself to his colleagues. He chose not to stick it out for his next election. And why I'm being blamed for his decisions is shocking. And why, do you think, why do you think that you're being blamed? Because you were the first? Because there, there were several other of your know. colleagues on the stage who are running for I president. I do not know. Too. Yeah. I do not know. I can tell you I did know at the time 
that there is no prize for anyone who stands up to a powerful, popular person who's good at his day job. Um, but I believe we should have the courage to do it anyway. And I know what I did was the right thing to do. I think it's ultimately been harmful to me. But I would stand. The donor, by, donors have, 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 I would have, 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 have spiked you on stuff, and su- including our very own Susie Tompkins Buell here in, in San Francisco, yeah. big donor. But I would stand by those eight women, and especially that congressional staffer, again, because yeah. if I can't stand up for her, who can? The I wonder. I always want to hear your your take on the the way back, if you will, for men who are accused of it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Did you see the new Aziz Ansari uh, comedy? And a comedy uh, sh- special. It's called uh, Right Now. Did you? Did you I didn't you see, it, see no. that. Sir? It's really interesting because obviously he was one of the people who was kind of he was uh, uh, had some Me Too accusations against him, and he and he addresses them. What? How do you see the way back for someone who is yeah. accused on that? Where? What? What do you? Can you ever get back, or is it of let the market decide, or no. if you're an artist or a, a so journalist a, or whatever? I'm a very faith-driven person, and I you're Roman Catholic, correct? Or, um, and Christian. And Christian. I fundament, fundamentally believe in redemption. I think anyone who has made a mistake on any level, um, whether they've committed a crime, whether they've made a mistake, anyone can reemerge from that. But it takes certain steps. Um, it takes humility to recognize you're wrong. It takes um, having some measure of accountability, you know, whatever that might be, depending on what the issue is. If it's a crime you've committed, it might mean actually doing jail time. Um, yeah, short it, of a crime, I think. If it's yeah. a mistake, it yeah. just might mean saying you're sorry and truly uh, expressing your regret and remorse. Um and then just making a decision to go from there. Like, it's not that hard. It's just that it's very rare. But it's why in the criminal context, I really support people who, when they come back, that they deserve the right to vote. They deserve to have their voting rights restored. Do you know anyone who's done a, a good job so far of, like, of, of walking that road yet? I know it's we're still early. I, <laughs> so, I haven't so seen it, but it doesn't yeah. mean it hasn't been done. Yeah. But I think redemption and forgiveness is there for everyone. You just have to have the humility and grace to understand that we do make mistakes and then have the courage to take responsibility in whatever way is appropriate and then uh, decide you're going to lead from a better place. Um, and I think it's necessary. And I think for politicians, we have a president in the White House who would never admit he's wrong about anything, who would never admit that he made a mistake. And he digs in and he continues to make those mistakes. And it's not good. He is not a role model for our youth. He is not a role model for this country of someone who's had more than a dozen sexual assault allegations against him and who not only makes fun of the women, but continues to degrade and dismiss, particularly women of color, particularly members of Congress of color, uh, devaluing women in every respect. So he would never have the humility to apologize for being wrong. He would never have the wisdom to listen to someone and recognize that he's wrong. And he would certainly never have the courage to lead from a new place. And I think we should ask that and expect that of our elected leaders. Speaking of the president, we haven't talked too much about him today. But in one of the debates, you mentioned him seven times in the first debate. Um, and, and in the second debate, all Democrats, uh, between all of them together, mentioned his name 161 times. I was at the Cory Booker uh, event here in San Francisco the other day, and he said, uh, I don't want the Democratic Party to ever define itself by what it's against, 
in this election, we have got to define ourselves by what we're for and who we're for. How much Trump is too much Trump? <laughs> I think you I, need to do yeah, both. How do you, how do you, how do you kind of I think you need to line? do both. And and I think in the first debate, I probably hit Trump the most in my minutes. I think you, you might have been one or two. You're definitely yeah, one definitely or two. Top, yeah, definitely Because yeah. Uh, I want the American people to know that Trump has lied to them. I took a bus tour to Ohio, uh, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, the Trump Broken Promises bus tour. <laughs> and I lifted up every promise he made and explained to voters who perhaps voted for him how he lied to them. He said no bad trade tills. That's total BS. He's not only signed on to NAFTA 2.0, which is a giveaway to drug companies in Mexico, but he's in a trade war with China, which is hurting our agricultural producers. It's hurting our manufacturers. I was in Youngstown, Ohio, talking about when President Trump said not one job will be lost, not one plant will go overseas. Well, total BS because GM just lost another 1,000 jobs in Youngstown, Ohio. <laughs> so I really took it directly to Trump's backyard to tell voters how I'm going to beat him. So you do need to explain to voters he misled you and that he said he'd lower prescription drug prices. Under his presidency, they've only gone up. So you keep it, you so keep you, it specific and that's the tactic. Correct, you take. that yeah, you yeah. need to show how you will contrast with President Trump about who you are and how you're different and how you're actually going to protect those families that felt so deeply left behind, mm -hmm. so much so that they voted for the big disruptor, the guy who would blow up the system right. because they thought at least under him, maybe my family's got a shot. Well, the truth is the system is deeply rigged and bad trade deals harm us. And so we do need to protect families. We do need to provide universal job training for anyone underemployed or unemployed. We do need to provide debt-free college so more kids get the training so they can actually get good jobs and earn their way to the middle class. So you talk about your vision, about how you're going to fix their community, their lives, and their worries, and address them directly, but also explain to them, he lied to you, and you're, and just ask yourself, is your life better today or than when, than when he came president? And I think for a lot of people, particularly those families in Youngstown, Ohio, their life is not better. Right. Uh, one more question. There's a uh, story in the New York Post today that quoted uh, uh, someone close, an unnamed person close to you that said, you know, it would be best if she decided this was not her time. This is, mm -hmm. and, and you get these questions a lot when you're po not going to be on yeah. the next debate stage, polling low. What What is your thought process on that? I think we're going to make the debate stage. And I believe- With the next debate stage? Yes. I believe- That's going to be a late rally. I believe your listeners will actually get me across the finish <laughs> it's the, line. It's all political bump, you're saying? Yeah, I need, I need about- 10,000 more supporters. And I believe that the people listening to your podcast can send a dollar at KirstenGillibrand.com <laughs> yes, to plug. get me there. The plug. Um, there we go. And I'm very optimistic. I think we've been really <laughs> leading leading the national conversation about reproductive rights. Only candidate to go down to Georgia and Missouri to stand up to radical legislatures that are taking women's reproductive rights away. I've been leading the conversation on LGBTQ equality, uh, not only having repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell as a freshman senator, but also following that up by working on the Equality Act and making sure uh, families can adopt children, uh, making sure they get access to the medicine and drugs they need, taking on the drug companies. So when they create, uh, they refuse to create a generic for PrEP, I am fighting that fight to make sure all LGBTQ families can get access to medicine. So, and I've been standing up to Trump on transgender for his entire presidency uh, and leading that charge. I've also been leading the charge on getting money into politics. I mm -hmm. am the only presidential candidate with the comprehensive solution that experts agree is the most robust to actually have publicly funded elections like they have in Seattle. It works and I can do it nationally. So I'm proud of the 
issues that we keep raising um, on these debate stages. And for your listeners, if you want these issues raised, I need to be there. You may not know who you're voting for today, but at least think about who you'd like to hear on the next debate stage. And I believe my voice is needed. Senator, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. I'm just disappointed I couldn't bait you into swearing. Oh, I'm trying very hard. (laughs) I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Senator Gillibrand for coming to San Francisco to be on the podcast. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you shamelessly curse on a podcast or not, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.